Matthew chapter 20, uh, chapter 14. We're going to read verse number 22 through verse number 33 this morning. Matthew chapter 14, and uh, if you found your place, I'll begin reading in verse number 22. And then we'll pray. Verse 22 says, And straightway Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship, and to go before Him unto the other side, while He sent the, multitude, the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, He was there alone. I'll just say this really quick. If you are a child of God, you should have some place, some time to get by yourself to pray. And that should not be infrequent. That should be common. This was our Lord's pattern, His way of life. And it should be that for every believer. Uh, it is not enough. It is not enough to pray with the other disciples. You and I must have, if we are going to grow, we must have a time that we set aside to God to pray alone. The Lord said what? To enter into your what? Your closet. That's your room. And to pray to your Father, which is in secret. Let's continue in verse number 24. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. And said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him. Notice this is the first mention of the disciples worshiping Jesus in the Bible. Saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people. Uh, Lord, I pray as we look into your word, uh, as we try to pay attention to what it says, as we give our hearts to what it says, Lord, would you please meet with us and teach us? Lord, you said you are the spirit of truth and that you would guide into all truth, that you are the teacher. Uh, and Lord, beyond what I might say, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us and teach us. And Lord, if there be some among us who are uh, going through difficult difficulties and afflictions and tribulations, please give comfort and help. If there's some among us who are sinking and have, have not yet cried out to the Lord, I pray that you would work in those, people, those people's hearts as well. Lord, we pray you guide and direct in everything that's said and done. We need your help. And uh, please meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So many things in the New Testament, in the Gospels, happened around the Sea of Galilee. 
so, so many things. You think of the Sea of Galilee on, a, on, the, on the worldwide scale, the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, but it's not that big. Uh, you know, some of you have lived near uh, the Great Lakes. You know, when you go to the, I've been to Lake Erie. I've seen uh, Lake Erie. I've seen Lake Ontario. When you see the Great Lakes, you, 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 when you're coming down, especially in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and you come down the uh, kind of the, the, the landscape, there's a little hill that goes down to the lakes. And when you're coming down that and you look off into the distance, you see the lakes. It's almost as if the lake rises out of the, the earth. The Great Lakes do because they rise straight up to the horizon. The lake is the horizon. It's a, it, they're enormous. The Sea of Galilee is not like that. It's big. Brother Lester's probably seen the Sea of Galilee. I've never had the chance to see it. But uh, the Sea of Galilee is a big lake. But uh, if you went to something like Lake Kiwi or, or one of the large lakes that's around here, it would be, you know, something comparable. The difference is the Sea of Galilee is, is round. It's, it's heart-shaped. It's about, uh, about eight miles wide, about 13 miles long. If you took the, the area of the Sea of Galilee, you're basically looking at the boundaries of the city limits of Greenville uh, City times two. So if, if you're walking that distance, that's a, pretty big, that's a pretty big lake. Of course, we know that the Lord walked across the lake to go to the disciples uh, so, you know, in terms of, it's not a pond, it's a, it's a big lake. It's, the, the Bible calls it a sea. But as I said, there are so many events that happened, you know, on, on, on a relative scale, it's a small place. But on, the, on a, you know, in the scripture, it's a major place, a major place. In fact, it's even in prophecy, the area of Galilee, Galilee of the nations from which the Lord would come, where they would see great light because many, many things that our Lord did as far as miracles and teaching happened around the Sea of Galilee. Think of the things associated with the Sea of Galilee. When the Lord called the disciples, that was done. He said, I will make you to be what? Fishers of men. You think of the multiple trips they took across the sea, the storms that happened on the sea in the Gospels. You, you see the, the, how the Lord calmed the storms all the miracles that he did in association with the Sea of Galilee. He, he, one of his appearances after the resurrection was at the Sea of Galilee when he said, come and dine, when they saw him on the shore. Remember, he told Peter to go, uh, go out and, and cast a hook into the, the, the sea and the first fish that come up would have a piece of money. That was for the taxes. That happened at the Sea of Galilee. There's parables that the Lord, Lord mentioned about how, that, you know, how that the disciples were... Uh, that, that it's, uh, he compared the kingdom of heaven to people gathering fish and how he'd cast some out and keep some. And there's a, the, uh, the, the event where the disciples were, were to cast the net on the other side of the ship and they brought in 153 fish in, on, in that uh, instance. So, so many lessons happened around the Sea of Galilee and this is one of them. And the Lord used the Sea of Galilee as an illustration. It was an important, even though it was a small place, it was the Lord used that location as a tool to teach. And he can do that with us, even in lowly Greenville, South Carolina. One interesting thing I came across, many of you probably know this, is in Greek, the word for fish is a five-letter word. And in early Christian times, some of you have seen people's cars and they'll have the little fish on the back, not the one with the legs, 
that's that's not the one. That's the Darwin fish, which is a, a mockery of, <laughs> of the fish. But the fish, that's actually a very ancient uh, Christian symbol. And the reason you have the fish is because <clears throat> if you take the Greek letters that, that say fish, uh, it's called uh, ichthys. If you take the Greek letters that make up that word, it's an acrostic. The first letter stands for Jesus. It's the first letter of Jesus. The second letter is the first letter in Christ. The third letter is the first letter in God. The fourth letter is the first letter in Son. And the fifth letter is the first letter in Savior. So it's the word fish, think of the Sea of Galilee, in, in the Greek uh, word for fish says, stands for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. Why did that happen? Because of the Sea of Galilee. The Lord's ministry happened around that. And even the lesson we're looking at today happened because it was around the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is, is not in a plain. There's mountains all around the Sea of Galilee. I would encourage you, if, if you have some time this afternoon, to go do a, a search on YouTube and look for, uh, look, do a search for something like uh, storms on the Sea of Galilee. And you'll find a lot of people that preach sermons on that. This is no exception. But you will find some videos on there where people, they stand on top of these mountains and you can see the entire Sea of Galilee. And you can see the storms that are on one part of the Sea of Galilee that hadn't quite, haven't, quite reached, haven't quite reached the other parts of the sea. And there's some, uh, some instances where you can see how turbulent and boisterous the water is because of the storms and the wind and where the waves come crashing onto the, uh, the docks and things that are at the Sea of Galilee. And that gives you an idea of what, what we're seeing here. And so the Lord is on, the Lord goes up to pray on the mountain. And so you assume if he's on the mountain that he's, he can see the Sea of Galilee. Because from the mountains around the, the Sea of Galilee, you can see the entirety of the sea. And you can see the storms from a distance. Now I don't know if at this time there were clouds. I don't know. Uh, the Bible says that it was the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if it was close to the end of that watch, the sun might have been starting to rise a little bit when the sky starts to, to brighten. We don't know what time it was exactly. It might have been totally dark. But the disciples left after the Lord dismissed the people, and the Lord told them, it says in verse number 22, he says he constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before them, before him unto the other side. So they were doing what the Lord wanted them to do. And they left around dark and they, they rode out to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you follow the timeline, now it's the fourth watch of the night. So if they left around sundown, which is six, seven, something like that, and they went and at the fourth watch between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., that means they had been rowing for like eight hours. You don't need eight hours to walk across the Sea of Galilee. An average person walks about two and a half to three miles per hour. So you could, how long would it take you to walk at two and a half to three miles per hour to walk across the Sea of Galilee at the eight-mile mark, eight-mile width? It wouldn't take you eight hours unless you stopped, took a drink. So they, they were having some trouble. All night they'd been rowing, and they had only gotten about to about the middle of the lake. That's what John says. It gives the distance. So 
get the picture. The Lord's on the mountain. We assume, I'm assuming, that he, he can see the Sea of Galilee. He can see the disciples way off in the distance. It's dark. And they had been rowing a long time. And we're not really making very, very good progress. Now, one, one thing that's interesting in this, in this narrative is unlike the narrative in Matthew chapter 8, when the Lord is in the boat, you know, when there's a big storm and the water's coming in the boat and he's asleep in the back on the pillow and they come to him and, and they're, they're concerned, they're fearful because of that. This is, this is not like that because the Lord, the difference is the Lord is not present. The Lord has given them a command. He's given them something to do. He's, if I could put it like this, he's, he's told them his will. This is what I want you to do. But he's not physically present. But even though he's not physically present from his position on the mountains and because of what he told them to do and because he is the Lord of glory and the Lord of all the earth and he's omniscient, he knows that this storm is this storm of wind is coming. He sent them into it. And he is observing them. You know, he's in prayer. I don't have any doubt. What do you think the Lord was probably praying about? If you had to just guess. He was probably praying for the disciples. That, I think that's a safe assumption. But he was not physically present. But though he was not present, he was observing. He was paying attention. See, this was a test of the disciples' faith. And it was a test that had been prepared by the Lord. Now, I'm at, I'm, think about it. Th think about this. The Lord knowing full well, there would be a storm of wind. The Lord knowing full well. Now, now you got to make some distinctions here. This is not the same as in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, the boat's about to sink. There's no indication that it's that bad here. It's just a storm of wind that's contrary. In other words, they're just trying to do what Jesus told them to do, and they've been getting at it for eight hours and really have not gotten very far. And yet the Lord told them to do it. So obviously the Lord had prepared this, this test. Why would He do that? Here's what you need to remember, that though He was not physically present, they were doing His will. They were obeying the Lord in faith. You think, well, that's just, that's just that's something little. It's not like doing something big. That's irrelevant. The life of obedience by faith is not only the big things, but the day-to-day -day trivia, the small things on a daily basis. And so them going from traveling from one place to another at the Lord's command, at the Lord's direction, is part of God's will for them. And even though they're doing His will, their journey is not without difficulty. Now, you look at the storm of wind. They've been rowing. They're having a hard time. It's contrary. It's not easy. They thought maybe, well, if the Lord told me to do it, there should be smooth sailing. But the wind was contrary. It wasn't easy. Doing God's will was not easy. Now, I want to ask you a question. This thought comes into our minds, and we think this way. 
if this is the will of God for me, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Because we, we have bought into this idea that when God tells us to do something, it should not have any difficulty associated with it. That the mark that you're doing something wrong is that the wind is contrary to it. And that's just not true. That is, that is true, that, that is false rather, from cover to cover of the Bible. Job is a perfect example. The Lord prepared this, this, uh, this trial for them. And the, the fact that the wind was contrary and what the Lord told them to do was hard was not an indication that they were doing, they were doing something outside of the will of God. I'll ask you, were they in the will of God? Yes or no? Were they in the will of God? Yes, they were doing just exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. But it was hard. It was not easy. It was not smooth sailing, as they say. Now, we don't determine what God wants us to do and what is God's will by the ease of that thing. Listen, this world, controlled by the, the prince of this world, will give us an easy path straight to the pit. We'll get on that slide and it'll, it'll we'll slide right down. It'll be an easy glide right down into hellfire. It will. Of course, we know as a believer, we don't have to worry about that. But you want to talk about ease. The will of God is not promised to be easy. In this world, you shall have tribulation. But the fact that something is difficult does not, is not a marker that you're not doing God's will. So we should not ask the question, if this is the will of God, why is it so hard? I want to tell you, I have asked that question. This should be easier. Why is this so hard? And really, to be honest, that's, that's just the wrong question. You know, sometimes in marriage, you know, you pray about who you're going to marry, right? You seek God's face. You, you fast. You ask about this most important question. And few questions in life are more important than who you marry. Salvation. That's, that's about it. <laughs> whether you, whether you, you know Christ, whether you have trusted in Him, that's the only thing that's really more important than who you marry. But let me, let me tell you something. So you marry that person believing it's what God wants you to do. And then people, when, when they hit the rocks and they realize it's hard because there's no such thing as an easy marriage. It is hard, Period. And they hit the rocks and then they, then they start to have buyer's remorse and they want to say, well, I, I, maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe this is, wasn't the will of God. Listen, we should never say that about marriage. In fact, something I, was, I, I've, uh, I've, I've, I kind of follow on social media, one of the, one of the things I've heard uh, this particular person say, he's, they, they say, if, if you are married, you didn't marry the wrong person. Once you're married, you're married to the right person. It is the will of God. <laughs> Once you're married, once you say I do, show's over. No take backs. That means from that point on, that is the will of God. That means you, it might be hard, but it's God's will. You determine God's will not by the way you feel about a circumstance, but you determine God's will by what he says. And he told them to go to the other side. 
But then the Lord comes in verse number, He comes walking in verse 25. He saw them. He walked out to them. It took hours to get out to where they were from where He was. Verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. In the midst of affliction and difficulty, there is joy and relief. Hear me now. In the midst, in the middle, among trouble. Here, this is the point I want to make on that. It is possible for a disciple of Christ, that's you, just like these, to have joy and cheer while the will of God is hard and contrary. And see, the fact that Jesus is walking to them, you know, they're having a hard time, but they're doing what the Lord wants them to do. And the fact that the Lord walks to them, you know what that, ser that, that serves to them? That's the reassurance. Jesus' appearance to them on the sea in the middle of the trouble is the reassurance that they're still doing what He wants them to do. He had a meeting that He had planned for them in the middle of the sea. And they had to get out to the middle of the sea in the middle of the night, in the middle of the trouble, so that He could meet with them and teach them something. And this is really a lesson. The presence of Christ walking with them that alone assures them that they're exactly where the Lord wants them. Look at Acts chapter 23, if you would. Verse 11, Paul's in jail. I would call that affliction. I would call that trouble. This is not the Greenville County Detention Center three square meals that might not taste all that great, you know, but, you know, you can call your friends and buddies or whatever. No, this is, this is Roman jail. Verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Notice who's with him. The presence of God. To reassure him. What does he say? Be of good cheer. In other words, you can have joy in prison because I'm beside you and you're in God's will. I am glad that for a believer in Christ, in the midst of trouble, the Lord comes beside us and reassures us right when we need it that despite what appears contrary, he is pleased that we're still just right in the center of what He wants us to do. Are you there? Back in Matthew chapter 14, He says, Be not afraid. Of course, in this case, they were afraid of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, they were afraid of the storm and the boat sinking. There's no indication here that they were afraid of the storm. They were just exhausted. They were just having a hard time getting to their destination. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou. I thought when I read that, who else would it be? <laughs> but he says, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. 
And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And of course, we know what happened. Verse 30 says, And when he saw the wind boisterous, he took his eyes off the Lord. He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Peter walks on the water. Here's the thing. Peter did what Jesus did. He followed Jesus' example. Let, let, me, let me clarify something. Jesus did not come into the world to just be an example. That's, that's a philosophy that this world has, they have ripped apart the Bible to, and left just one little part of the Bible to say that Jesus' main purpose was to be an example, so we should do what he did. He is an example. He is the ultimate example. But his ultimate purpose was not just to be an example. Being an example will not save a soul from hellfire. It will not take sin away. It took his blood. It took his blood. But in this case, he is an example to his disciples. Right? And we find Peter following his example. In other words, what Jesus did, Peter did. It is possible to follow the Lord's example in this world. We do not need to give ourselves any excuse or pretext and just, uh, just a pass on really faithfully being like Christ. Well, you know, I'm imperfect. So, you know, these, these, listen, they're just excuses. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know none of us are perfect. And that is the excuse for not even attempting. Just say, well, you know, I've got sins. That's not what the Lord says about it. We can follow his example. Now, admittedly, was Peter's, uh, was Peter's uh, following the Lord, was it, was it whole? Was it perfect like the Lord's? No, no, Peter was faulty. He got out of the boat. He tried to follow the Lord. He exercised some serious faith, but ultimately it was faulty. But he, let me tell you something. He did a lot more than the other disciples did, though. He walked by faith. And when he walked by faith, he followed the pattern of the Lord. He lived like Jesus at that moment, right? Now again, our faith is frail. <laughs> it comes and goes. We see ourselves. I see myself and Peter. Start out in great faith and then the next thing you know, you're like, you know, this is not working out. Another thing we see about Peter is, unlike the other disciples, Peter acted on faith. Now hear me on this. What we call faith, listen, faith is not just the mere mental assent of facts. George Washington was the first president. Faith is not a mere, mere assent of facts. Listen now. Faith that does, does not act upon the faith, upon its basis, is fake faith. That's why we say obedience by faith. It's not that obeying the Lord, listen, obedience comes from faith. We believe God and so we obey. But there are many people who say, well, yeah, oh, I believe, oh, I believe, I believe this and I believe that. I believe what the Lord wants us to do this and that and the other and don't do it. I believe Jesus is the Savior. Have you ever trusted in Him? Are you relying on Jesus right now for your salvation? Well, no, I've been baptized. 
Well, then he's not your Savior. Stop saying it. How can you have a Savior, someone who you call a Savior? You say, I have faith in the Savior, and he's not saving you. Something else is saving you. Faith that does not act upon, uh, does not act is fake faith. James is very clear about that. It is only words. Faith, but, but Peter, Peter showed his faith by what he did. The moment he stepped out of that boat, he showed his faith. Now his faith was weak. His faith failed him. But he did show faith. Hebrews 11. Listen to this. You can just listen if you don't want to turn there. Because I'm not reading whole verses. I just want to read part, 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 partial verses. Verse 4. By faith Abel offered. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated. Verse 7. By faith Noah prepared an ark. By faith Abraham went out. See this? By faith, he, Abraham, sojourned. Through faith, Sarah received strength. You know what you find in here? Verse 21, by faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Joseph made mention. By faith, Moses was hid by his parents. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho fell. Listen, what is, this, what is the formula of faith in Hebrews 11? By faith did. By faith acted. Listen, I don't want to hear about what we believe. That is what we mentally assent to. I believe this is true and that is true. I don't want to hear that. God wants to see us take those things that we say we believe and trust in and act upon those as if they're true because otherwise we're, they're just, it's just words. If it's true that God is pleased for us to be a part of a local church, then be a part. If it's true that God wants us to serve together in the local church, we'll then serve together. If it's true that God wants us to spend time with Him in prayer, then pray if it's true that God wants us to get the gospel to other people, then take the gospel to them. Stop saying what we should stop saying what we believe and start doing what we believe. And then you go back to Matthew 14. The Lord just says, Come. You see that word? Faith cometh by hearing, hear by the word of God. So Peter says, Lord, bid me come out on the water with, with you and the Lord says, come. That's the word. He's trusting in that word, come. That, that, that he's not going to sink when he steps out. He's trusting in what Jesus said, but he's acting upon that trust. He's acting upon that trust. Listen now, he is acting upon that trust and he's stepping out. But he begins to sink. The doubt, verse 31. Wherefore didst thou doubt? So he saw the, the circumstance and his faith wavered. How our faith always wavers just like this. What we intend to do at the beginning with great earnestness, it, it shakes, it wavers, and we sink, and we start to get discouraged, and we want to turn back. And this is exactly what happened with Peter. But notice what happened. He began to sink. Let me ask you a question. When Peter was sinking at that moment, how was his faith? How was his faith? 
He's thinking. Doubt has entered into his mind and heart. His faith is diminished. It's weak. Yet out of that small faith, what does he do? So his faith is little now, whereas we would say it was big before. Out of that little faith, what does he do? That faith of Peter cries out. Even though his faith is little, it's still faith. And even though his faith is little, the Lord saw it. Little faith. And the Lord grabbed him by the hand. The Lord's faith is good. His feet are still on top of the water. He's not sinking. But what a wonderful picture. Little faith, but the Lord saw little faith. This is a wonderful picture of saving faith in Christ. Listen to this. You know, the devil has so marred and watered down the meaning of faith where it's just mental assent. People, people go to things like confirmation and they, they learn, and I did this as a kid, they learn prayers, they learn uh, catechisms, they learn to repeat things so that they can give mental assent to faith. And so they think, oh, do you believe that Jesus died for our sins? Yes. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is Savior? Yes. Mental assent, mental assent, mental assent, mental assent. But you know what they've never done is what Peter did. They've never recognized that they're sinking. They've never called out, their faith has never called out to Christ. They have mental assent of all these things that he is and all these things that, he's, that he has done. But they, they've, they're, they're like the man who, who doesn't know he needs a physician. He doesn't even know he's sick, but he's deathly ill. He's sinking into the water. Most people have never seen that they're sinking. Listen, if you do not have Christ, you are sinking and you are going to go to the lake of fire for the sins that you have committed, for your sin debt against God, your crimes against God's law. You are sinking. Jonathan Edwards in the sermon of sinners in the hands of an angry God, he described the sinner as, as, as hanging on a spider's thread over a fire. Peter saw he was sinking. But that faith in Peter, you know what it did? Put there by God now. Jesus said, come. He's standing on the water by faith. That faith, while he's sinking, cries out. He sees he's sinking and, and exclaims. It's, it's just, it just popped out. It just like came out, gushed out like that. He saw he was sinking. He saw he was in danger. This faith is personal. Lord, save me. It is earnest. He saw the danger. And, and Peter, at this moment, realized that Jesus, who's standing on the water, is his sole hope. This is a perfect description of salvation. We talk about what it means to believe in Christ, to trust in the blood of Christ. These are biblical terms. But this, to believe in Christ, is not to say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus died for me. That's a catechism. That is not what Peter's doing here. Peter's taking these things that he knows. 
that Jesus is on the water and his faith is crying out for Jesus to save him. He says, Lord, save me. On August the 4th of 1999, that's exactly what I did. In fact, I use these very words. I had no, I, I don't know why. And I'm not saying this is a big dramatic, that's, it's not, a, not, not that it's a big dramatic experience. It was fairly dramatic for me. But the point is this. When I knelt down there and I, in that kitchen of that Palmetto Bible camp and I was really confused as to whether I was sinking or not and I prayed and asked God to show me where I stand with Him. Because I'd been in church and all those things. And I'd, I knew the gospel. Mental ascent, mental ascent, mental ascent. I had my little profession of faith, repeating the little prayer and all that stuff. When I got down there and God turned the light on and all of a sudden all these things that were doubtful and difficult and confusing became clear in that moment. It wasn't, it wasn't me saying, I believe Jesus is the Savior. No. It was, I'm in danger. Lord, I'm sinking. You're on the water. You're the Savior. Save me. That's what it means to trust in Christ. That is what it means. That is saving faith. It's more than just knowledge in your head. It's your trust, your soul trust in Christ and what he did for you on that cross. Nothing else. Are you sinking? Do you see that you're sinking? Have you seen that you're sinking and sinking? Your heart called upon the one who could save you. Personal, earnest, your only hope. This kind of cry springs out of a desperate faith. Lastly, I'll say very quickly, that Peter, his faith failed him. Poor guy, I wouldn't have done as well. <laughs> I, I doubt I would have gotten out of the boat, to be honest. The disciples' faith wavered also. But you know what? The Lord used a failure of faith to build their faith. He used a failure to build their faith many times. And when, the lesson, and when God's lesson is over, remember he sent them out to the, the, the river, the, the, the lake there. When God's lesson is over, one snap of a finger and it's done. The affliction is over. Because when they got back in the boat, the Bible says they were at their destination in John. They were there. It was over. And the Lord will do that. When what he wants us to learn is over, one snap of a finger and that affliction is gone, like it was with Job. Brother Ari, would you come on? I just ask you as we close to examine your heart. Have you seen yourself sinking? And sinking, have you called upon the one who can save? Let's pray.